So, how long we got? Where's our destination today? I don't know. We got 20 miles to cover. Let's talk some movies. People don't know how to drive. Are we going to get lunch on this gig? You seen anything good recently? Not really. Right, we got a little time, Steve. Let's do a podcast. Sounds good. to Film Driven. Uh, I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Haskett. And we're driving through the sweltering streets of Chicago uh, doing another podcast. And today's subject is director Ridley Scott. Yeah, and uh, kind of centered around his new movie Prometheus. Prometheus. Which uh, is or isn't an alien prequel, depending yeah. on... Uh, <laughs> depending on your point of your view, Your taste, Steve. what you had for breakfast that morning. Right, absolutely. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's certainly a prequel to uh, to Alien, I guess, in a sense that it's set in the Alien universe, but it's a, it's not really an Alien movie, you know? You, like, if you're expecting a, a, a type of film where An alien chases you around, around from, to eat you, yes. Yeah, so yeah, where, uh, like, a scary alien is about to jump out of the dark. Now, that does happen in the film a couple of times, but it's not really handled the way it is in the Alien films. It is a prequel. It's set before the first Alien, also directed by Ridley Scott. And uh, it centers around the spaceship uh, Prometheus, whose mission apparently is to find the origin of life on Earth. Steve, that's pretty... That is correct. Yeah. Uh, the film stars Numi Rapace, who was the original... Elizabeth Salander in the Swedish uh, Girl uh, with the Dragon Tattoo series? Yes. What do you think of her? You like her? Um, it, you know, she does a fine job in this movie, I will say. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I kind of like her. She's weird, you know? She's got a weird voice. She's got a weird yeah. face. She's kind of memorable, you know? I, I don't think she's, like, the most beautiful woman in the world or anything No, she like looks that, a but... bit like a burn victim, to be honest. <laughs> and I, I, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I no, mean no, that pretty not. factual, like... Sometimes I look at her face and it looks like it's been distorted by fire. Yeah, she's real young too. Like she she looks older than she actually is. I think she's yeah. a fairly young chick. And uh, and th there's there's I, I like her. Like I said, I th I think I think she's interesting and I think she can act. And uh, and really that's all all we can ask for at this point. And uh, uh, I mean she's kind of the lead, but it's also similar to the first Alien and a lot of Ridley Scott's movies where they're. The main character isn't far and away the main character. I mean, it's very clearly an ensemble of people on this ship. Absolutely. And her and story gets the most screen time, but it's not like Jerry Maguire or something, where no. the whole movie is just based around her character's journey. The story revolves around her character's mission, though, and her mission is uh, discovery of these caves on Earth all over the planet in different spots and all these ancient paintings, cave paintings for the most part, and all these different ancient civilizations, somehow point to a constellation outside of our solar system where aliens supposedly came and uh, 
created life on Earth. In fact, the film begins with a shot of an alien standing on what's clearly planet Earth a few million years ago and kind of like drinking some liquid, then he just falls apart, like... On a molecular level, he yes, falls literally apart. falls apart, not metaphorically. <laughs> right, exactly. Doesn't have an emotional scene, uh, and um, the implication being is that these aliens came and uh, created life on Earth. Yeah, that he kind of uh, had the whole death, decay, your DNA becomes part of the Earth process, all takes place in a matter of seconds. Right, and that seemed a little rushed to me. First of all. He seemed to be like some kind of a bodybuilder, Steve. I, I didn't really understand why that alien needed to be that muscular. Did you understand why he needed to have like Schwarzenegger type of? Uh, um, all I could think body? is maybe Ridley Scott's been reading Watchmen. Yeah, yeah, it had a little bit of the the Doctor Manhattan look, but to even it. more, even more so, even much more. more muscular. That guy was like Mister Universe type musculature, and I it it seemed like. It seemed like the, you know, space alien super beings just wouldn't spend that much time in the gym, <laughs> it seems to me. But, uh, it was a little vain for an advanced civilization. Exactly. But, you know, the search for these creatures and their motivation in creating the human race, kind of a search for God, essentially, that's kind of a big theme for a science fiction movie. And it's very important to understand about Prometheus is that it is kind of a serious sci-fi movie much more in line with like a 2001 than the alien films which really are focused specifically on the thrill of human versus these predatory aliens so in that regard prometheus is very different from alien which does not have massive pretensions at deep philosophical themes but it's much more of a you know, monster jump out of the dark type. Sure. Of I mean, if, there are some themes in Alien about meddling with other cultures and things like that and what you bring back with you from exploration, but those are all secondary to um, when the spaceship becomes a haunted house. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Alien is a horror movie set in space. It's not a philosophical, it's not a philosophical exploration with a monster in it. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I uh, and it works like that. And I'm talking about Alien. It definitely works in those terms. And I think the later Alien movies introduce some other themes and concepts to the franchise that a lot of people kind of backdate to the first Alien movie, which again I think is a very straightforward genre. Yeah, film. no, the first it's a horror film set in a science fiction world. It's a monster movie, exactly, and exactly. it's a great monster movie. It is a great monster movie. Prometheus, not so much in my view. I, I found Prometheus to be um, kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, I felt Prometheus kind of half-assed several different angles and therefore didn't fully ask any of them. Um, you know, it, it set the tone very early on, as you said, to be a serious, more philosophical film. And then it doesn't fully deliver on that promise. If you're looking for it to be this kind of meditation on uh, human existence and our soul and what life is, I think you're going to come away disappointed. Uh, yeah. If you're looking for a horror film with monsters that jump out at you, there is some of that. But I think you will probably also come away disappointed. The suspenseful sequences in the film aren't without drama. They're not without suspense. But 
even with the modifications to the alien and the new people involved, there's a little bit of a been there, done that to uh, the alien attacking parts of Prometheus. Yeah. With one notable exception, uh, there's a great scene where the uh, Numi character basically performs an abortion on herself. I guess it's more of a cesarean. Right, right. uh, But that, to me, I mean, I will say, for nothing else, that whole sequence is kind of a new little mini classic of uh, body terror and right i was very impressed by the uh, heroine gets into surgical pod performs cesarean these uh, vicious clamps come out and just remove this pulsating alien pod thing from her stomach <laughs> while she's screaming and then it staples her up and off and, she goes and off she goes running around like nothing <laughs> happened that, that's like a that's like seriously un. Uh, a couple times she admin she self administers uh, an anesthetic shot to herself in various parts of her body. Keeps on running, keeps on running, never slows down. So she's quite uh, quite an athlete in that because that's that's not that's not what you call recommended post op uh, behavior. Right? And that's you almost uh, correct. You don't run around. <laughs> <laughs> you don't run around after major surgery, but they, whatever. Well, that whole sequence is almost a third angle of the film, which it's the only thing like that, but might have been the most fun, is if you treated the whole thing as some sort of crazy horror, almost comedy. I mean, it's it's not like it's a funny sequence, but right. it's it's so absurd it's, and a bit over yeah. the top that you you know I found myself kind of laughing at absolutely the it's horrendousness giddy. of it's it. It's giddy and entertaining, and, and it's well I mean, done, and yeah. it had a lot of life to it. Exactly, it's, exactly. Unlike. A lot of the movie, a lot of the rest of the movie. The movie seems really dry. You know, yeah. it doesn't have a lot of emotion. It's got, uh, it, it, it's cold, and uh, it's a cold world that it's set in. So it kind of makes sense. But to me, Prometheus is very much a mixed bag. Some things work very well, other things don't work at all. But all of it is kind of unsatisfying in a sense because it doesn't really fulfill any of the things it seems to establish for itself, except the fantastic uh, art direction, which uh, Ridley Scott, of course, is famous for, and some very interesting performances, particularly by Numi and uh, Michael Fassbender, who seems to be always kind of good, but here he plays a role that we've seen that before. He plays the ship's android with uh, fairly uncertain... Uh, motivations like you don't know where this guy stands and obviously as an android he's not particularly emotional but he does certainly seem to be sarcastic doesn't he steve yeah i've ever seen and he's also a bit sadistic i'd say absolutely this guy is he and and it's and it's genuinely an interesting character because you don't know where you stand with that guy and uh i found him clearly to be the give kind of the best performance in the film i really enjoy what he did and uh he was interesting uh also uh what were some other interesting well, i was really into uh in Char- charise theron's character was interesting but pretty underserved in this right movie. right uh, one of the other things you get a sense of in this movie and this is um almost a theme with ridley scott is that you kind of feel there's a whole other hour of this movie Right, and even though the movie at times seems slow, and I was disappointed in it, I, you know, even in, before the movie was over, I found myself thinking, 
Well, it'll be interesting to see if uh, there's probably a lot more to that when I eventually watch the director's cut of this movie in the fall. Right, right. On DVD. The, and the director's cut is inev inevitably coming because this this has been a pattern of Ridley Scott's careers of late, where he just can't be confined by the theatrical running time of the film and has to essentially go back and release his official version on DVD. And, uh, you know, with some people, I kind of don't like that attitude, but with Ridley, I kind of do like that attitude because his director's cuts seem to be better than his theatrical cuts. Uh, and uh, we'll get into that a little bit later, but uh, I guess, well, what can, we, what can we say as a final word on Prometheus? Uh, well, if you go into it looking for a really serious sci-fi exploration of life a la 2001... Uh, you're not going to get what you want, and if you go into it just expecting a great alien film, you're not going to get what you want. Right. And he kind of teases both of those angles, but then winds up not satisfying any of them. Yeah. Now, so overall, a disappointment. It, it's uh, certainly not a bad film. I was engaged. I was watching. I wasn't rolling my eyes. I was marveling at the beautiful visuals that were presented to me uh also i gotta mention that the movie is shot in 3d and uh although you and i didn't see the film in 3d uh i kind of wish we had because i think there was enough cool stuff in there that i saw that i think would be fantastic in 3d and i have talked to people that have seen it in 3d and really liked it so i think if uh, there's any chance of you catching prometheus in the theater in 3d you should give it a try because I think it's worthwhile. Mild recommendation, I guess. Kind of my thumbs is sort of in the middle. I'm not giving it a big <laughs> gladiatorial thumbs up yeah, or I... a big gladiatorial thumbs down. B minus. Who knows? Maybe the director's cut will flush out some of those hefty ideas and uh, end up being a better film than what we saw the other day. Ridley Scott uh, overall is kind of a bit of an uneven director, especially in, in recent years. His early career was, uh, well, he started out as an art director, right, Steve? He, uh, he yeah, he, uh, he went to art school for design, but then uh, in graduate school he also did get involved in film. He kind of helped set up his school's film program. Mm -hmm. Right out of school he got work as an assistant art director for the BBC. So worked on a lot of British television, and, uh, you know, his design... I, you know, carries over obviously into his film work. Right, right. He's another one of those guys who occasionally gets accused of being an quote unquote art director, pretending to be a director. And I actually, frankly, disagree with that uh, with that criticism of his. I think he's actually a fine director. I think he, overall, if you look at his body of work, is he's good with actors. He's good with tone. He's excellent with geography. He's brilliant at creating entire worlds. He's maybe one of the best guys in the business at creating viable universes in which his movies are set, whether those universes are just worlds of the past ages or futuristic worlds, as, of course, he did in Blade Runner and Alien and Prometheus as well. So he's fine at that stuff, but uh, he... Yeah, from BBC, he kind of drifted into advertising, right? Yes, and he, uh, him and his younger brother, Tony, who also, of course, is a film director, uh, they founded a uh, production company in 1968, and they made a lot of... Uh, they did some films, but also a lot of commercials. It actually became kind of a powerhouse 
commercial firm yeah. in the 70s. Yeah, they made very memorable commercials. I think everybody's familiar with the excellent spot they did for Apple computers, which was one of the first you know, commercials for Apple. And I remember when that commercial came out, and it was mind-blowing. I mean, there were no commercials like that. This was, if you remember, the takeoff on 1984. Correct. Uh, and uh, it was just visually staggering piece of work and uh, again I just want to point out there were no commercials like with with that kind of visual scope made up to that uh, that time so that commercial was extremely influential and he also made some very stylish spots for like Chanel number no. five and remember the one with a you know where the guy comes out of a swimming pool and I mean Stuff that's like almost a cliche at this point, oh, yeah. but it he was created so that. sexualized. That's Ridley Scott, and and I mean that that stuff, as far as commercials go, that, that's very influential. It really stands the test of time, and and um, you know you got to give it to Ridley. Uh, yeah, but in the uh, 80s and 90s, you know, there's this whole thing of a bunch of directors who came out of either the commercial or music video world started making features. And some of the directors are, are very good, but then a lot of them, you know, the knock on them is always style over substance. Right, that These right. are these guys that have these flashy looks, but they didn't know how to tell a story. Exactly. And uh, Ridley Scott was actually almost a prototype of this, from this world. That he, he was. He was a flashy commercial director who started making movies. Very now, much. I, I guess what I'm saying is Ridley Scott is almost, you could hold him up as... That should be your goal if you are a commercial director. Exactly. If you are someone who makes slick car commercials or fashion ads and you'd like to direct feature films, then Ridley Scott should probably be your model. Ridley Scott's first movie was called The Duelists. It came out, I believe, in 77, right, Steve? Correct. And uh, this is one of my favorite films of all time. This is this is a guy who he's never like directed a full film before, and Duelist is just... In my view, it's kind of a mini masterpiece. It's a it's a period picture. It's set during the Napoleonic Wars. It stars Harvey Keitel and uh, uh, Keith Carradine. It's basically a story of these two officers in the Napoleonic Army who just develop a hatred for one another and starts fighting a series of duels. Now they don't kill one another in any of these duels. They just fight. That's basically a movie. Very very simple. Very episodic. Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, this is a movie where Ridley Scott clearly establishes the visual style that he's going to be known for, and it's just—it's just a terrific film. It's told elegantly. It's uh, very nicely acted by these American. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, once you actors. you make the jump of accepting that Harvey Keitel was in the Napoleonic Army, you're all right. Right. Well, you know, you you slap a mustache on Harvey Keitel, and you slap another weird must great mustaches. It's a good it's one mustache. of the finest mustache yes. movies ever, uh, but both both Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine. I mean, this is weird casting because these guys are so are both so quintessentially American. And not only does he put them in this period piece, he turns them into French officers from you know the early nineteenth century, and it is it works. I mean, Keitel is fantastic in the film, and Keith Carradine carries the picture beautifully. I mean, he's you can totally identify with his character. He's the less psychotic of the yes. two. And um, if you haven't seen The Duelist, I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful picture. It's an underappreciated film 
not just in Ridley Scott's career, but overall. And it was wildly underappreciated by the audience. The movie was basically a bomb. Ridley Scott was very disappointed and kind of heartbroken. And I think right after The Duelist failed to get any kind of audience following, even though it got good reviews, um, I think Ridley Scott decided to do something that was going to be explicitly commercial. And Alien is the result. Yeah, supposedly, as you say, he was depressed about the reception of The Duelist, and then he saw Star Wars, mm -hmm. and he said, hey, this sci-fi thing is where the money's at. Yeah. And uh, Alien was a movie that was being, it was not anything he developed, and this, this seems to be kind of a hallmark of uh, Ridley Scott, that in many ways Ridley Scott's one of the ultimate directors for hire. Yeah. And that he, uh, for a guy who is kind of heralded for his vision, uh, he almost never generates his own projects. He's not an auteur. He usually joins the projects fairly early on, and the earlier on he joins, the better the results are, for, from yeah. what I could tell. Um, yeah, so Alien was something, he agreed to do it, and he, um, you know, the look of Alien, this kind of maybe goes to Ridley Scott's background design. One of the really interesting choices he made is that before he came on board, the producers of Alien had, you know, s requested design submissions from a variety of sources, including H.R. Uh, Geiger and uh, a bunch of particularly French comic book artists, uh -huh. Mobius. Uh -huh. And to keep the looks different, um, Ridley Scott used Mobius and a couple other guys' designs for everything inside the ship. And then, of course, famously used H.R. Geiger's designs for the alien. Right. So the alien, you know, apart from being great, you know, a great design on its own right, it looks very different from it the does. ship. It's it looks like, alien. well, this is a... This is not just a humanoid version of things on the ship. This is a entirely new species. Yeah, that worked very well. Both Alien and The Duelists are not big-budget movies. No. Alien was definitely viewed by the studio as a genre film, very much a B-picture. It didn't cost a lot of money to make. Duelists was made virtually on a shoestring budget. Most of the money they spent on Duelists, they spent on costumes. Yeah. Everything else was shot like in an English countryside, and literally they would just like set up some tents and there's a military camp, and that's how the duelist is. And Alien has a similar vibe to it. It's, if you really look at it, there is not much to it. It's a single set, and everything is done cinematically. Alien um, has, you know, it's, it's a cast of people who you know almost all of them now, but at mm -hmm. the time they were not right, big stars. Right. I mean, that's, not big. Tom Sigourney Scare Weaver was made a star from that. Movie. Exactly. And, uh, you know, and then you have, like, Tom Scare, Yafit Koto, and uh, Harry John, Dean Stanton. John Hurt and Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. Again, all very well-known guys, but, you know, not exactly lead actors. And uh, it works very well. There's a great sort of interplay between characters. There's a looseness to performances that's kind of interesting. Now, you look at it now, and the movie looks loose. It feels like, it feels like a 70s type of movie, you know, where, where it's not. People talk over each other and interrupt one another and... And are quirky, you know, and it's kind of cool. Like it's that. something I've always liked about Ridley Scott, which has continued through a lot of his films, is that he does, he trusts the audience that if he can just insert you into a situation, that eventually you'll kind of figure it out. He trusts the audience not to be idiots. His stuff looks different, it feels different, it has different types of 
acting and approaches and different rhythms to it. And uh, and again, this is one of the reasons he's probably the best of the journeyman directors in many ways. And, and he's certainly regarded as such by Hollywood. After the huge success of Alien, and it was very successful, Ridley dips into what's probably his best film. Uh, another science fiction film called Blade Runner. Which, you might uh, have heard of it. You may have heard of it. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny because Blade Runner, when Blade Runner came out, it was not wildly regarded by either the audience or the critics. I mean, famously, both Siskel and Ebert disliked the film. Uh, it did not make a lot of money in the box office. I very clearly remember seeing that film as a kid. And honestly, Blade Runner changed my life in, in, for, for, as a moviegoer. Because to me, Blade Runner... It was so provocative intellectually that I think it was one of the first films that I'd seen in the movies where I was both intellectually and emotionally involved in the storyline. And I just thought it was, I thought it was brilliant as a kid. I remember seeing it a couple of times and thinking about it. I felt it. I felt like there was really, he, he was really, really messing with narrative. He was, he was twisting characters around and uh, using earlier genres to tell this very kind of futuristic tale that dealt, that got into some deep, deep intellectual and philosophical themes, like what it means to be human, for example. And uh, and I just love Blade Runner, but, uh, you know, what most people love Blade Runner, of course, is the look of the film. I mean, I will say, uh, I came to Blade Runner a lot later. I mean, I was certainly aware of it. It was one of those things I never actually sat down and watched till I was in college, and so it was a good, you know, 10 to 15 years after the movie came out. And, you know, I, I found, I, in some ways I found it surprisingly cheesy, uh-huh. uh, the storyline. I thought it was a little overrated. Part of that, I will acknowledge, could be that that movie was so monumental that I'd been through a decade of post-Blade Runner works right, in right. various art forms, you know, whether it be they comic books or movies or TV shows. Um, so, you know, the overall storyline I found, I don't know, a little reductive. But I will say that, you know, in terms of history, that, I mean, that movie, that kind of like dark neon cityscape, you know, basically like Tokyo gone extreme and evil, I mean, that... <laughs> That kind of became the default vision of the future in right. movies. Yeah, well, for I mean, maybe through today. Through today, I mean, people and, still uh, rip it off. And and it was the first thing like that. Yeah, Blade Runner is one of those films, much like Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey, that just changed the way people visually approach certain types of filmmaking, and it really seeped into just about every aspect of. Oh, yeah, and it wasn't just uh, visual. I will say that, you know, in college, I remember seeing a lecture from a, a sound mixer who actually did After Hours and things like that, mm-hmm. and he said that the movie that the sound guys all get drunk and talk about in awe was Blade Runner. Right, I mean... That, that was the first movie that had the equivalent of the depth of field in terms of its sound design. right. Right. And they were just in awe at the levels and the care and the craftsmanship paid to Blade Runner. There's very few films, Steve, in the history of cinema that have grown a stature as much as Blade Runner has. 
but after Blade Runner, Steve, uh, uh, I, I went think a little mildly little downhill for a little Red low. Light. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, he did um, he did Legend, which is another you know, it's a visual feast. Uh, and, starring uh, Tom Cruise, it's and it's remembered a bit as an embarrassment for pretty much all involved. Legend, not fantastic. Uh, someone to watch over me, eh, not not that great. Visually nice, but kind of a genre picture detective film. Tom Berenger, um, Black Rain. I like Michael Douglas. I like movies set in Japan. Uh, it was kind of a Yakuza movie. If you want to see a movie about a, an American detective doing his stuff in Japan, uh, dealing with Yakuza, I would recommend a movie called The Yakuza with Robert Mitchum. <laughs> it would not be Black Rain. <laughs> it just seemed like such an 80s, like, let's hire a stylish director and go to Japan. And they'll be like Japanese gangsters and everything will be dark and rainy and it'll look cool. Right. And it does look kind of cool. It does. But there's not a ton going for it beyond. My favorite college professor back in in film school uh, was a guy named David Desser, who's a fairly noted film historian. He said, like, Ridley Scott, he thinks, is genetically incapable of making a really bad movie. But he's certainly capable of making movies that aren't that good or just don't work. If you look at the entire filmography, there's certainly films that are not that great. But there's no turkeys. He he doesn't have a single turkey in his filmography. Well, that's in some ways that goes hand in hand with the whole director for hire thing. That Ridley Scott, you know, is a very competent not only visual stylist but storyteller. So he gets offered these gigs, and you know, I don't know his thought process behind any of them. But you know, who who knows what went on at the meeting for Black Rain or whatnot? Right. But. Basically, people pitch Ridley Scott ideas, and he says yes or no. And right. if he says yes, you know, he does what he can with what's in front of him. Even though there are films by Ridley Scott that I'm not a big fan of, and there's certainly just big bombs that he's directed, I don't think there's anything just... No, out-and-out disaster. Outright yeah. horrible. I mean, I challenge you to see some of his least successful films and, and tell me that it's it's a bad film. It just there, there's just nothing in this filmography that is just outright bad. Uh, but there are some films are more successful than others. And in his next film, following Black Rain, is one of his most iconic films, and that's Thelma and Louise. And a bit of a uh, left turn departure. Uh... Well, absolutely, it's a movie about women. It's centered on women. It's got two women as its central characters, and uh, they are they go like on a cross country crime spree and. Well, I think pretty much everybody has seen Thelma and Louise, and uh, what what more can you say about it? Two fine performances at the center, very feminist message, and just a entertaining film from beginning to end. Well, and it's also, I mean, there is action in Thelma and Louise, but Thelma and Louise is uh, it's very much an actor-driven movie, mm-hmm. more so than an action-driven movie. Yes. And... Um, it's also interesting, because Ridley Scott is a guy who, his public persona is you know he's british he he's sir ridley mm-hmm. uh, well, but he, he's got one of those kind of slick when you picture like maybe a little sleazy hollywood guy 
is. I mean, that's kind of Ridley Scott's public persona. Like, you know, he's, he's rich. He's been in the industry forever. Right. He's got, he you know. He smokes cigars. Yeah, kind of a trophy-ish wife. And, uh, I mean, Ridley Scott has directed two of maybe the five most notable mainstream feminist movies in the past 30 years. Right, right. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, if you talk to women especially, like, who are... Yeah, I'm not talking about experimental features, but like in mainstream Hollywood cinema, like what are you know what are the big examples of like feminist heroes? And <laughs> what I hear is Alien, Thelma and Louise, The Silence of the Lambs, and Fargo. Oh yeah, a lot of credit does he deserves for that. So almost a decade after Blade Runner, Ridley Scott spends the better part of a decade giving us kind of mediocre stuff. Then we get another pretty great film. Right. And then it's right back to the better part of a decade giving us some more mediocre Well, films. again, ambitious, but not quite the bullseye that, yeah. that I'm sure he was hoping for. First of all, 1492, A Conquest of Paradise, starring Gerard Depardieu uh, as uh, Columbus. And uh, and again, like if you see that, if you ever see that playing on TV, give it a give it a spin. I mean, I think you'd be surprised to find that it's it's actually okay. Uh, White Squall is a film that I will admit to never having seen. That stars Jeff Bridges. Something to know. do with boating. Yeah. Uh, a lot of young men in very tight shorts running around the deck of a ship. Um, just missed that one. Don't know. Yeah, I've never seen it either. I kind of hate men on boat stories uh, <laughs> but uh, G.I. Jane I rather enjoy and here's another strong female character now the G.I. Jane stars uh, Demi Moore as uh, the, the first ever female uh, Navy SEAL recruit Demi Moore is cool like she does a good job in the movie uh, Viggo Mortensen actually makes his career in that film it's funny Ridley Scott you know has this reputation they're like oh well Ridley Scott he, he loves strong women Ridley Scott certainly, as we've discussed, has some movies with strong women, but it, it's funny to me that people talk about, like, well, Ridley Scott, of course, and his love of strong women. Uh, Ridley Scott has a strong female protagonist in about four out of 21 films. Well, his next film, of course, is a huge hit for him. Probably the biggest hit of his career. Well, yeah. 18 years after Blade Runner, which was criminally underrated, uh, comes Gladiator, which, <laughs> is, I mean, is a movie I like, but I think a movie that was was pretty overrated. Right, right. It's overrated. It's 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 a fairly silly, you know, sword and sandal type of epic about a fictional Roman general who becomes a gladiator. It's one of these things that you and I have talked about often on podcasts that the disappointing thing in the past decade where if a movie just delivers on your expectations, it gets overrated because right. so many movies fail on your <laughs> Right. So, so many movies look like they'll be good and then just turn out to be shitty. Right. So Gladiator's a movie that when you heard about it, and you go, oh, that could be cool. And it's a it's an entertaining, competent Hollywood cool. product. Exactly. And so people were like, oh, I love Gladiator. Exactly. Yay. It survives multiple viewings. It was also came out at a time when... Uh, it's the first pairing of uh, Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe, mm -hmm. who, of course, went on to make it Several to date films five together. films five. together. Mm -hmm. And uh, that movie came out when Russell Crowe was kind of just entering his sweet spot. I think he was an up-and-coming leading man. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, absolutely. Gladiator made, like, like before Gladiator, 
I think, you know, you and I both appreciated Russell Crowe because he was so great in a couple of films prior to that, particularly L.A. Confidential, where, like, nobody talked about him, but anybody who's seen the film said, hey, that was the best performance yes. in the movie. And then, uh, uh, and then he did The Insider before Gladiator, exactly. which also kind of rose his profile. He was um, like, oh, this guy can act. Now yes. you could put him in makeup and he could play a middle-aged American. Yep. And, and, you know, so Ridley Scott puts him in this action hero mode, and it's friggin' awesome because he just had, he had it in that movie. He had whatever that star quality that nobody can quite put their finger on. He had it, Ridley brought it out in him, put it up front and center, made it work. I am, I'm certain that Ridley Scott had to fight to have Russell Crowe be the lead in that film. And also it's important to remember that Gladiator, in, in a sense, revived historical epics. It did, uh, yeah. The historical epics were huge in the 50s, and then they just became passe and silly. Nobody made historical epics. Along comes comes Gladiator, and bam, historical epics are back. Now there's Troy, and you know, you name it, they're coming out all the time now. Sure. Uh, and it was Gladiator. We have Gladiator to thank for that, or blame for that, whatever. Whatever your attitude on historical epics is, I personally love historical epics because historical epics are, well, it's what cinema. It's one of the things cinema does best. It allows us to kind of travel to another time and when it's well done it works you know it's very very effective and it's one of the great things about the cinema and um well there you go gladiator of course won best picture right i believe the one best actor for Russell. yeah Crowe. yeah those so, are where some of the kind of overratedness comes in well but, yeah but what, what was gladiator up against i don't even remember you know it's one yeah. of those oscar things like what what was the what was the competition against gladiator i remember when when gladiator was up for best picture there really wasn't anything that exciting up against gladiator gladiator kicked off an impressive two-year little run here for right. sir ridley right where gladiator comes out then in 2001 he had two films and two that and you know in early 2001 he wins the you know wins the oscar it's right. quite an impressive little run and yeah. in 2001 he had two films that came out he had hannibal which was the very high profile sequel to silence of the lambs uh -huh. and uh, also black hawk down towards the end of the film uh, end right. of the year and right. um i mean discuss i mean hannibal i don't I, i've seen hannibal um it's one of those it, it's a pretty pr high profile thing um i will say Hannibal is kind of crappy because of the source material. I'm going to just say it. It's his but, worst fucking film. But he redeemed himself after Hannibal with Black Hawk Down, with a, a very impressive and vicious war film. Yeah, Black Hawk Down really kind of reinvents the combat film genre. You can argue that it, it came out after you know, Thin Red Line and uh, Saving Private Ryan, other great combat films of the, of the modern era. But you know what Black Hawk Down does very differently from those films is, it's um, I mean it's a modern combat film. Correct. It's not set in World War Two, so he is not, in fact, kind of recreating conventions of an older genre, but in fact creating, you know, a new chapter in the genre. And um, Black Hawk Down is just great. It's big in scope. It's beautiful looking. Uh, it's got a great cast. It's a huge cast with, like, tons of familiar faces in it. But everybody's perfect. Nobody, like, really 
tries to steal the show or outact anybody else. And uh, and and then you know the good half of the film is just pretty much nonstop action, but it's good action. And this guy is a craftsman. He knows how to put stuff together so it makes sense, both dramatically, uh, rhythmically, and um, intellectually. And uh, man, it's 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 just terrific. Yeah, I mean, it maintains the chaos of the situation, but you still, as a viewer, you know what things are going on. It doesn't just destroy a sense of space. And uh, yeah, I you know, I, it's interesting. I saw The Hurt Locker before I saw Black Hawk Down, and obviously Black Hawk Down predates The Hurt Locker mm -hmm. by several years. Mm -hmm. And you know, having seen both of them now, I mean, as you said, The Hurt Locker owes an enormous debt to Black Hawk Down. Oh, I yeah. mean, it's basically the template for how to do a movie like that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, and it's it's uh, you know, when The Hurt Locker came out, it. One of the things people praise The Hurt Locker for is that it was a war movie, especially about Iraq, that was people said it was devoid of politics. And that, that wasn't exactly true. No. It, it didn't really delve into whether it was right or wrong to be in Iraq, but there's certainly the point of view of the film and the soldiers in the film is that they shouldn't be there any longer. I mean, there, there, there's some politics in it. Yeah. Black Hawk Down is almost completely devoid of politics in terms of why they were there. Right. There's some mentions about, you know, some of the characters have idealistic visions, but right. it really does focus on this one particular mission. Right. And the military response to it. Right, and it's based on a true story as well. So, so the, a lot of the advisors on the film were guys who were involved in the Battle of Mogadishu. Uh, I, I don't know about the complete lack of political politics in Black Hawk Down, Steve. Black Hawk Down, I remember very clearly. It, it came out very shortly after 9-11, and there is a coda at the end of the film that seems to be somewhat critical of Bill Clinton's um, pulling our troops out of Somalia after this incident. I don't know if it's possible to make a war movie that's devoid of politics. Yeah. So. Actually, I mean, I like the script of Black Hawk Down. I was yeah. watching it on TV the other day, and, and again, there's just these little sequences of dialogue in that movie that are just downright profound. Again, I mean, the movie just has layers and layers. It has tons of awesome actors in it, just like you keep seeing faces that later on become popular, more popular, bigger, like Eric Bana being one of them, and uh, Ewan McGregor, of course. Uh, yeah, the movie is just terrific. I love it. It's one of Ridley Scott's best films, unquestionably. Um, and, uh, you know, after that major change of pace for Ridley, uh, he made a movie called uh, Matchstick Men with, um, with Nicolas Cage, which is his... Um, the film with a smaller scope. It's literally a character study. It has like five actors in the whole thing. And um, I really like that film. Not only is that one of Nicolas Cage's best recent performances on film, which he's not saying much perhaps, but it's saying something. The guy, the guy is a capable actor. Uh, but it's a terrific film. It's just a, it, it's it's about con con artists. It's about essentially people lying to one another, and um, yeah, there's a real heart to that movie. It's beautifully put together. If you haven't seen it, I really recommend it. It's an excellent and uh, little seen gem, I think, uh, and a fine example of Ridley's skill as a director. Well, I would say this: we're moving in this area of Ridley Scott's career here, where you know he he was a powerful Hollywood director. You know, somewhat in the 80s, certainly in the 90s. But I will say, after Gladiator and Black Hawk Down, he kind of entered into a phase where both 
personally and professionally, he seemed to just kind of do whatever he wanted. Right. You know, right. it was. I'm sure he gets offered things all the time, but he it seemed much more like wherever his uh, whims were taking him. You yeah, know, like some matchstick men. For yeah. whatever reason, he wanted to make a small He wanted film to make a after. movie like yeah. that, and he did that, and then he followed that up with the complete, the gigantic Kingdom of Heaven. Kingdom of Heaven, which was his Crusades movie, and this was a project that's been around for years and years and years. I've been reading about Kingdom of Heaven for probably a decade before it was made. There was a time when it was supposed to actually star Arnold Schwarzenegger, of all people, and uh, you know, and 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 it's interesting. I mean, it's certainly a timely movie. To explore the very beginnings are of our conflict with uh, militant Islam, and uh, you know I like Kingdom of Heaven, and uh, I didn't like the theatrical release of it, but the director's cut of it is is quite good, and uh, it's gorgeous, beautiful to look at. Politically, there's some goofy things in the film, but uh, overall, I, I think it's worth seeing, and I think uh, if you've never caught that movie, I think it's worthwhile. But only see it in its director's cut version because the theatrical release Kingdom of Heaven is just stupid it doesn't make sense because an hour of narrative has been removed out of it for financial considerations and it sunk the film it made it not make any sense and it didn't make any money and um, this sort of takes me back to another aspect of Ridley Scott's career Ridley Scott is one of the guys that will have no qualms about re-releasing his own director-cut versions on DVD and basically saying that this is the actual version of the film that I want you to consider as that film. Very few directors do that. He did that with Blade Runner. Ridley re-released it with a film. Hates us. What are you doing? Stop. What's up? Uh, we're actually recording a podcast. Oh, okay. Okay, <laughs> I know we're we're like weirdos driving around the neighborhood. No, that's all we're doing, man. Okay. It's funny that that made sense to that kid. So yeah, so so Ridley Scott basically re-edited Blade Runner and put it out in a director's cut, and uh, you know his director's cut seems to be the version of Blade Runner that everybody's familiar with, right? Uh, I mean, did you see the the original version with the? No, I'm pretty narration? sure I saw. Yeah, the the one without the narration. Yeah, the yeah. director's cut is it, and so that's a kind of an interesting phenomenon. Not a lot of people do that. Some yeah, some people have called that. Ridley Scott the father of the director's cut. He'll get in with the studio and he'll say, "Look, I want you to understand. I'll give you a two and a half hour version of this film, but I also want it in my contract that I am allowed to put out a director's cut on DVD." That'll be the only DVD version of this movie, and that's it. And that's how he seems to do it now. And uh, I guess it works for him, and it certainly worked for that film. Uh, Kingdom of Heaven was followed by uh, Good Year, which was one of his biggest disappointments in his career. Uh, another kind of smaller picture, again, Russell Crowe. Did you see that one? I did not. I mean, uh, nobody did, Steve. Yeah. Did. I mean, I will say I don't know how big a disappointment that could be because that movie looked like uh, the equivalent of Ocean's Twelve, where Ridley Scott's like, maybe Russell and I would like to go to Italy for four months, <laughs> and while we're there, what the hell, we'll shoot a little movie. And uh, so, it, you know, it looks like they had a nice time. Uh, American Gangster was a much bigger hit for him. Again, Russell Crowe. Uh, 
and uh, Denzel Washington this time, who is uh, who is his brother's favorite movie star. Uh, Denzel Washington and Tony Scott have made many movies together, but this is the first time uh, Ridley worked with uh, with Denzel. Yeah, American Gangster is a is a good picture. It's a it's a genre picture. It's about the sort of a rise of this famous uh, New York heroin dealer who started in Vietnam and essentially started importing Vietnam. Vietnamese heroin or Thai heroin into the United States and became a big drug lord. And uh, it has all the tropes and cliches of your classic rise and fall of a gangster story. Uh, but what it also has is it has a parallel story about this kind of new uh, New Jersey, I believe, uh, police officer who kind of makes it his career to bring down this uh, drug kingpin. And uh, he's played by uh, Russell Crowe. And... Uh, I don't know. That parallel structure to me doesn't work very well. I think the movie would have been better off if it just focused either on Russell Crowe or Denzel Washington. Instead, it tries to kind of give them equal footing in the in the final cut, and uh, it doesn't. You know, one story is so much more interesting than the other. It's a movie where you know maybe because they were buddies that he mistakenly cast Russell Crowe, and that should have been a smaller actor in that. Part. It should have been a smaller actor. I think Russell Crowe was was monumentally miscast in that film actually and uh, it's not that he's not good he tends to be good in just about everything he does because he's on he works hard and he commits but it's not a Russell Crowe performance it's uh, and it kind of under uh, like, no. and especially because I mean the hook on that film was basically that is maybe the it was like the supposed to be the black godfather in a way yeah. this epic tale of you know the mob but with you know right the head of a black crime family. Well, I think also you... Another aspect of the whole thing may be... You know, like, here you get into an area where I think we kind of see the limitations of Ridley Scott as a director now. That, you know, not every director can do everything. And the urban African-American crime story does not seem to be a good fit for British born and raised Ridley <laughs> Scott. It just doesn't. I don't think Ridley has a feel for that milieu. And, uh, and uh, therefore the movie is kind of still not bad, Steve, but mediocre. Uh, Body of Lies, uh, his next film, uh, which is kind of a CIA war on terror film, that works a lot better, actually. That's an interesting film. And uh, it's a film that's got some cool things to say, but again, it doesn't get too overtly political, thankfully. But uh, Leo DiCaprio is a star this time. Uh, Russell Crowe is in it and plays kind of a cool cool role. And uh, it's basically CIA guys in Jordan trying to prevent terrorist attacks. Very watchable, entertaining, has some cool things to say, some interesting action sequences in it, some good performances. Nothing to write home about. And uh, and then Robin Hood, of course, which another period piece. Yeah, and uh, his fourth film in a row there with Russell. Crowe. Yeah, I think yeah. he's rustled out by this yeah. point. Now Robin Hood is, a, is an interesting concept, but I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say it's a it's kind of a big failure, man. I mean, it just does not doesn't really work. It's it's sort of a attempt to reimagine the Robin Hood myth in a more historical perspective. He puts it against the, the, the drafting of the Magna Carta by King John and, 
it just all of it just gets kind of muddled. There's there's good action. Crow is an effective leading yeah. man, but no. I'm gonna go even further and say that Robin Hood's a big example of. Um, I gotta say, out of all these kind of modern retellings, of, you know, whether it's that or King Arthur or the mm-hmm. recent Snow White movies, I mean, none of them work. You know, none of them really yeah. work. <laughs> And yeah. almost none of them are hits or anything, so it's kind of surprising to me that Hollywood keeps going back to those wells. Right. Because I I feel like no one's happy. Like, they don't really make a lot of money. They're not really well-respected, so it's... Yeah, I, I don't know. And it's hard for me to judge how, like, the finances work out for these things because, you know, a lot of times movies yeah, I guess just make foreign money make and money all, all over the world and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, Robin Hood is not a fairy tale, Robin Hood has some historical it's a back. Bit, it's pretty sure, much sure, but it's still it's basically a right. folk legend. Right. Well, the way yeah. Scott handles it is he definitely puts it in a historical perspective. You know, like like in Gladiator, the character of Maximus. There may have been a general named Maximus at that time, but that was certainly not the main. I know, but gladiators. There's not like, you know, children don't grow up hearing the story of Maximus. <laughs> so that's. I understand what he was trying to do with Robin Hood. I'm just saying it's one of those things that, you know, if I was directing movies, I would just steer clear of any time someone was like, you know, we're going to do a modern story of Rip Van Winkle. But no, it's gonna, we're going to put it in a, a realistic context. It's going to be gritty. I mean, run away. That's why I say just no, go in the opposite direction. Out. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's. There, there, I, I think most of the audience agreed with you on that one. Robin Hood was a big bomb. It was it was very disappointing for such a big, big budget film. And again, I think it's better than people give it credit for, especially in its director's cut. It's got some interesting things. It's got some interesting performances, some cool action. And really, I'm going to just say that nobody can handle historical epics as well as Ridley Scott at this point. He just has a feel for it. Like when you watch his movies. It, feels like you're looking at some some kind of authentic history or at least a viable artistic take on history and um, that's that's rare man I mean nobody nobody really can pull that off I, I not not even Spielberg in my opinion can do like historical epics like Ridley Scott but but uh, Robin Hood you know not kind of a misstep and uh, Prometheus being kind of uh, in the mediocre land as well kind of brings us to the point of is this is this the downslide of uh, Ridley Scott's career? He's in his mid-70s. Yeah. Um, you get, I'm getting the feeling that there's a bit of a feeling of a desperation a little bit with Ridley Scott and, and the project he chooses. Like Prometheus, I think, kind of reeks of desperation because, well, I mean, he's re- referencing an earlier classic of his. Uh, so yeah, and even if it's a tweak, I mean, it's still, there's a, from a jaded angle, it's a sequel. It's his well, first sequel. Prequel, whatever, you know, yes. But still. Well, Hannibal's a sequel, right? But it's not a sequel to his own work. Right, right. Is what I mean. Right. That it's the first time he is referencing specifically his previous work. Right. That's very, very true. Which and in some ways is kind of impressive for uh, that long a career. Well, for that long a career, but here it is happening, and you know, you may have also heard that uh, you know, one of his next projects coming up is supposed to be a Blade Runner sequel of some sort. I wouldn't mind seeing a movie set in the universe of Blade Runner, 
But I don't know if I want to see a sequel to Blade Runner. I mean, how would you really pull that off? I mean, most of the characters in it are dead. Uh, and uh, the actors, of course, are way older now. So what are you going to do? You have, like, Sean Young to do it? And uh, I, I just don't understand how you could make a direct sequel to Blade Runner. Uh, but uh, the world of Blade Runner could certainly be you know, explored some more. There's some interesting stories that can be told in that. But again, I think... I think you're getting a whiff of desperation from Ridley uh, in the choice of subjects. By referencing his previous work, you get the feeling that he's either really bored and just wants to make successful films as long as he can, uh, or he's just desperate to have a successful film, and which uh, at this point I don't think Prometheus is really it. I think Prometheus seems to not really be a big blockbuster that people were hoping it would be. No. But, um, you know, the other aspect of uh, Ridley Scott, of course, is his producing. He's been a successful producer. Uh, been doing a lot of television. Very successful on television. Numbers is uh, one of his shows. That's never seen an episode of it, but it's <laughs> supposed to be quite successful. Yeah. Uh, a Good Wife. Haven't seen an episode of that either. It's a huge hit. Does, like, some documentary shows. He does a cool show on sci-fi uh, called The Prophets of Science Fiction. Uh, where he talks about the work of some of the best science fiction writers of the past hundred or so years. And he's, of course, produced some cool films as well, including one of my favorites of the past few years, uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Yes, so, I love that film as well. But yeah. it's, uh, well, really, Scott, it's, it's, when you look at his whole career, it's, you know, I was looking over his filmography, there are kind of two directors that kept coming to mind as comparisons with him. Uh, one of them is Michael Mann, who is more or less... Appear, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. he's a little bit younger. Contemporary, yes. But uh, the, to me, Michael Mann and Ridley Scott are always fairly intertwined. That they're both directors of, you know, they came up at the same time. They both make films that are often talked about, often lauded more for their visuals than in terms of their storytelling abilities. Um, but I will say, I think Ridley Scott is a little bit better than Michael Mann. I've liked some Michael Mann movies. but He's uh, more consistent than Michael yeah, Mann. Yeah, I just think he's a better storyteller. And uh, his, Ridley Scott's best films are better than Michael Mann's films. Right. But both of them, those two guys, have, uh, I'm not sure if they've worked together in a producing capacity, but they always seem kind of two peas in a pod to me. Right. And I know for a fact that um, you know Russell Crowe, as we mentioned, was, did The Insider with Michael Mann. And when he was in talks to do Gladiator with Ridley Scott, you know, Russell Crowe, before he met Ridley Scott, had said to Michael Mann, like, you know, well, what do you think? Should I do this movie? I heard that, you know, there's a chance Ridley Scott's a bit of a dick. <laughs> and Michael Mann basically looked him in the eye and said, Ridley Scott's one of the best shooters in the history of movies. <laughs> like, go do a Ridley Scott movie. Right. And right. you're going to look awesome. Right. And that, that was good advice. And I wonder if the next <laughs> sentence out of his mouth was, you just worked with the biggest dick in the industry, <laughs> so nothing that Ridley is going to whip out at you is going to compare to what you, you just went through with me. So. Well, other than the other name I'm going to mention, too, is uh, good old Michael Bay. And I will <laughs> say that Michael Bay's whole career... Almost looks like a bizarro version of Ridley Scott's yes. career. Yeah, Michael like, Bay also came out of commercials. He was a mm -hmm. slick guy who made cool visual-looking things. 
got taken under the wing of some producers. He hops around in genres. But all the things we've been lauding Ridley Scott for, Michael Bay does almost none of those things. Right, right. They, you know, if Michael Bay directed Black Hawk Down, I can only imagine what an incoherent mess that would be. Oh, I mean, a piece of crap. Maybe unreleasable. Right. So if, if you're wondering about what can happen if you are a cool, slick, stylish commercial director who does movies... You know, there's there's the Michael Bay path or the Ridley Scott path. <laughs> and maybe it's just whatever, you know, I say path like, you know, I don't know how much they have a choice in it. As your uh, film professor friend says, Ridley Scott may just be kind of genetically incapable of making a bad movie, and Michael Bay may be genetically incapable of making a good one. Ah, there you go. It's, it's very true. He's like what Ridley Scott would be if all he had was some visual sense. If, uh, if that's all there was to him, he would be... Michael Bay. But thankfully for all of us, it's, he's much more than that, and he's given us quite a body of work there, Steve. And yeah. uh, I, uh, I always look forward to seeing what he does next. Even if it's disappointing, ultimately, it's still usually at least worth checking out. Uh, well, with all this going back to his past, I'm, I'm holding out for Duelist 2. Duelist 2 is coming. Duelist 2, more dueling. Du yeah, well, at this point, you know, in the storyline of the duelists, you could have both Keith Carradine and Harvey Keitel actually play closer to their own age. Ridley, if you're listening, uh, you could have that one for free. And, and our thanks, <laughs> and our thanks to all the wonderful hours of enjoyment you brought us over the years. And uh, that's all I got, Steve. Yeah, so that's it for film driven this time. I'm Steve Haskin. I'm Andre Shane. Join us next time. Thanks. Just one step at a time